Whoa! You really gotta stop doing that, friend. Enjoyed yourself last time, did you? Well, it's a good thing you came when you did, because I was just about to read a couple of stories. It'd be a shame if you missed them. These aren't your typical tales, you understand. That's right, friend. I've got some choice meat this evening. Whoa, watch your step there, Hoss. I didn't mean meat for you, Chester. Mm. Right this way to Casa de Blood. Have yourself a seat. I'll just be a second. That's better. You know, they say these things are unhealthy. But the last time I checked, they've got zero cholesterol. And this too. Low fat. Can you believe it? So sit back and smoke them if you got them. Drink those glasses to the bottom. Because old Drew Blood has a tale to tell. <laughs> This is Season 1, Episode 2 of True Blood. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. To get instant access from our friends at Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights, thank you for your support. Well, I see you've brought the rain with you. Now that you're comfortable, let's get down to business. Tonight's featured author is one of Canada's finest storytellers, a standout in the realm of weird fiction. A man whose Cemetery Dance magazine called an anomaly in the world of horror literature. Tonight, I'm proud to bring you two stories written by Steve Vernon, Nova Scotia's finest. This first tale is centered around America's pastime and steeped in dark secrets. From author Steve Vernon, I give you a fine sacrifice. could see the two older men, Will and Artie, standing together on Will's front porch like a pair of well-trained watchdogs. Their two boys played catch with a battered baseball out in Will's field. It's a good field, thought Sam. Will really ought to plant something in it. Sam knew Will's reasons for letting the field run to fallow. Still, it was an awfully good field, deep and fertile and far from the public eye. Will's grandfather had won the land in a poker game and had closed a deal in the knife fight that ensued afterwards. The original owner, drunk on too much stump liquor, had pulled a hunting knife from his belt and demanded his deed back. Will's grandfather, or so the story is told, broke the man's arm and took the knife from him and promptly gave the knife back to the man, blade first. Will had told Sam to tell one night while roaring drunk. 
The evening stood out in Sam's memory, not only for the story, but for the fact that Will was drunk enough to tell it. For though Will often drank like a fish, he rarely allowed himself to get good and tanked. Will didn't care much for losing control. Will had gone so far as to show Sam the actual deed. It was still stained with its original owner's blood. When Sam asked why he had never planted anything in the field, Will looked straight at him, suddenly sober. You really want to plant something else out there, Sam? Will clapped him on the shoulder. I think we've planted more than enough out there for now, don't you? Sam had shut up. He knew Will was right. Will was always right. Can I go play, Dad? asked Samuel. Sam started from his memory and smiled at his son, who had glided up behind him so quietly, Sam hadn't even heard his approach. Sure, run and be a kid, said Sam. Let your old man worry about being a grown-up. Young Samuel ran off towards the other boys, only too eager to leave the oppressive pall of his father's shadow. Sam heaved a sigh after him and then turned and continued towards Will's front porch. He's going to ask me, Will thought. My Jesus, I just know that he's going to ask me. The porch looked like a ransacked locker room with at least half a dozen baseballs and bats scattered about. Both the men wore baseball caps, and if Sam hadn't known better, he'd have sworn that the darkest thing the two men had to think about was whether or not their favorite team would win the World Series. Will leaned heavily upon his own favorite bat. It was a Louisville slugger, weighted heavy for most men, but in Will's hands it swung as light as a willow wand. He was a big, stocky man, but it wasn't just his size that impressed people. It was his air of absolute capability. Will looked like the kind of man who could build a house, fix a car, plant a field, hunt a bear, and sleep with just about any woman he chose. Will was an alpha male, a man's man and he carried himself like he knew it. Artie was more Sam's size and looked like the accountant that he was. He stood in Will's shadow back by the beer cooler. Both men had bottles in their hands. As Sam drew nearer, Will nodded and said something to Artie, who, without warning, scooped up a ball and drilled it in Sam's direction. Sam wasn't wearing a glove, but he caught the hard chuck ball just the same. It was expected of him. He managed to grin against the stinging pain. Not the best you can do, Sam asked gamely. Will took a swallow of beer, his eyes never leaving Sam's. That's the best he can do, Will answered, nodding derisively towards Artie. Artie just shrugged. He was technically the better pitcher of the pack of them, but it was an honest fact that he couldn't match Will for sheer power. Will stared up at the sun as if it were a clock. You're late, he said in Sam's direction. Sam looked up at the sun. It just looked like a big-ass ball of burning gas to him. He wondered if Will really could tell the time by the sun, or if it were all for show. With Will, you never quite knew for sure. That was part of his magic. Will grinned, and it made him look mean. He had a face like a ring-seasoned boxer. His eyes looked like hard, narrow gun sights. He always reminded Sam of a surly Robert Mitchell. Will claimed to have been a Navy SEAL as a young man, and although both Sam and Artie couldn't swim a stroke, neither dared to say differently. You just never could tell with Will. Artie looked up at the sun and nodded, but Sam wasn't fooled. He knew Artie was just following Will's lead. 
You want a beer? Artie asked, glancing at Will to see if it was okay, even though it was probably Artie who had paid for the beer. Will nodded his head so slightly that Sam almost didn't see it move, just a notch or two that could be caught only if you were watching closely. Sure, Sam said. Artie knelt and retrieved the beer from the cooler. He passed it to Will, who handed it to Sam. There you go, Will said. Sam reached for the beer. Only Will wouldn't let it go. How come you were late? Will asked. She keep you? Sam shrugged. Snooze alarm kept begging to be hit, Sam said. Will snorted derisively. You still using that damn clock radio of hers? He asked. Artie tried to intercede. Sam likes to wake up to his baseball, don't you, Sam? Artie said. That's a fact, I do, Sam said. A day without horse hide is like a day without sunshine. Will nodded another half notch or so and let Sam have his bottle. Probably slipped through the first inning thanks to that damn snooze button, Will said. You ought to get yourself a good old-fashioned alarm clock like me. I got a big old brass bastard. Goes off like a fire alarm and I'm out of bed at five every morning sharp as steel nails. Will slammed the head of the bat down against the pine floorboards for emphasis. Don't flinch, Sam told himself. It was too late for that. Both he and Artie jumped slightly at the sound of the impact. Sam swallowed slowly. You're right, Will. I ought to get myself a good old-fashioned alarm clock by God. I've got one I can give you, <laughs> Artie said with a nervous laugh. And bastard keeps going off five shop every morning. I'd like to slam it with the baseball bat someday. Sam laughed, but Will didn't think it was all that funny. He swiveled his gaze towards Artie and nailed him with a look as hard as a ball-peen hammer. Somebody ought to slam you with a baseball bat, Artie. Will raised the bat and let it drop within his grip, bouncing it three or four times against the floorboards. Artie choked on a swallow of beer. Sam watched the two men closely. The morning sun had just begun to climb towards noon and it beat down mercilessly upon Sam's bare head. The other two men wore ball caps, but Sam worried too much about his receding hairline to risk a cap. Will bounced the bat again and it sounded easier, like he was getting ready to relax. Any of you girls see the game last night? Will asked. Artie grinned, glad to be let off the hook. Cardinals kicked ass, Artie said. The Yankees' ass begged to be kicked, Will corrected. The Yankees' asses have been begging to be kicked ever since they let that damn Puerto Rican faggot take over as team manager. Sam spoke up without thinking. It isn't always the manager's fault, he said, and then suddenly wished he hadn't. Will turned to him coldly. It's always the manager's fault, Will said. He grinned fiercely. A damned fine sacrifice brought two men in, Will observed. And then, without looking toward Sam, he asked, Have you finished with Susan yet, Sam? Damn it, thought Sam. Damn it, damn it, damn it. Sam stayed silent. Artie finished his beer and leaned over carefully to place the empty bottle between his feet. Sam could feel the sun burning into his scalp. He tried not to look away. He wanted to dig his toe into the ground, like a small boy who's been found out at some mischief. Not yet, he said finally. Will nodded as if expecting that answer. Have to be soon, Will said, nodding toward the boys playing in the field. Soon. 
before she makes too much more of an impression on the boy. Sam closed his eyes wearily. She's his mother, damn it. Will remained obstinate. Don't matter. You know it's got to be done, Will said. It's for the boy's own good. Again, another nod towards the distant boys. We've talked about it enough, Will said. You girls sit here while I go teach your boys how to swing a bat. He jogged out toward the field without looking back. Artie bent and picked up his empty beer bottle. For a moment, it looked as if he were about to fling it at Will's back. Then he quietly replaced the beer bottle without saying a word. The two men watched Will in the field, already shouting instructions at their sons. It won't be easy letting go of her, Artie noted. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. But I'll have to, Sam thought. That's what you're really saying. I've got to because he says so. They stood quietly for a while. Little Artie dreamed of his mother last night, Artie said in a half-embarrassed tone. Sam wasn't listening. He does that sometime, although I don't think he really remembers her. Sam nodded absently. I don't think he remembers his sister at all, Artie went on. He looked down nervously at his shoes, like he'd suddenly noticed something dirty on them, and then he stared out towards the field. Don't tell Will, okay? he asked. Sam nodded, only half listening. Uh, About the dream, okay? Sam nodded again. The silence simmered between them. Sam heaved a heavy sigh. Damn it, what about Samuel? Sam snapped. He looked out toward the boys, but he couldn't make out one form from the others in all the running confusion. He's a big boy, Artie said. He can take it. He'll grow out of it. Hell, he'll probably grow because of it. You know what Will says. Take the woman out of the boy, and the boy will become a man. Sam nodded slowly. More silence. They watched Will clouting out pop flies and the boys hooting with joy. What if he grows away from me? Sam suddenly asked. What if he grows towards him? Artie didn't have an answer. The two men stood there in silence, staring out at Will and their sons. I'm not going to do it, Sam said quietly. Artie looked at Sam. You you can't back out now, Artie said. You're in too deep. He paused, stealing another look at his shoes. We both are, he added. Sam looked out at Will. I'm not afraid of him, Sam said. As if he had heard Sam's quiet declaration, Will turned to look towards the porch. 
There was something in that slow and dangerous turn of Will's head that reminded Sam of a tank turret. Will started in from the field, advancing on the two men. The three boys were at his heels, begging for a chance at the bat, but he held it high on his shoulder, too high for any of them to reach. As he got closer, Sam bent and picked up a baseball. He threw it at Will as hard as he could. He was aiming for Will's head. It missed. The boys ran off after it, bent on retrieving it. By the time they caught up with the ball, they had already forgotten the men standing on the porch. If Will noticed the throw, he showed no sign. He tipped his hand up in a beer-drinking gesture at Artie. Artie hadn't waited. He was already kneeling by the cooler in the shadow of Will's porch. Will carried the beer towards Sam. Have you made up your mind? He asked. Sam nodded defiantly. I'm not doing it, Will. I've made up my mind. You can't make me do it. Will nodded like he had been expecting it. He tipped the beer up and drained the bottle in one long, measured, methodical chug. Then all at once, he brought the empty beer bottle down like a blackjack against the back of Sam's neck. <coughs> Sam dropped to his knees. He tried to rise, but Will was too damn big and fast, slamming the butt of the bottle again and again against Sam's head, neck, and back. From behind, Sam felt Artie joining in, using his own beer bottle on Sam's defenseless back. Some inside part of his vision saw his own son running towards the porch, but the other two boys caught the boy in mid-flight. Samuel! Sam shouted fearfully from out of the cloud of his own agony the blood in his mouth slurring his words. Will stopped the beating just as suddenly as he'd begun it. He turned towards the boys. Little Sam, Will called out. Don't worry about your father. We're just playing a grown-up game is all. Then he turned back to Sam. Tell him you're okay, he growled. Tell him you're okay, or I'll sick the other two boys on him. Sam shook off the pain. <sighs> Daddy's okay, Samuel, Sam said hastily. Call him Little Sam, Will added. Daddy's okay, Little Sam, Sam reiterated. Little Will, Little Artie, Little Sam, you three go on back to your playing. The two older boys coerced Little Sam reluctantly back into the game. Will stepped back from Sam. Stand up, he ordered. Sam stood up trying to hide his pain in case his son was still watching. Get him a bat, Will ordered Artie. Artie picked up a bat from behind the beer cooler and handed it to Sam. Sam looked at the bat, dangling limply from his hand. He thought about using it on Will. Try it and your boy will pay, Will said as if he could read Sam's mind. Sam dutifully shouldered the bat. He stared dully at Will, awaiting his orders. You go and do what I've told you to do. What we agreed you'd do. You go ahead and deal with Susan once and for all. You defy me and we'll bury your boy out there with all the others. We'll bury you and we'll bury Susan. But we'll bury the boy first. Sam thought of the three quiet wooden crosses huddled together in the far part of the field next to the backwoods where nobody would find them. The three quiet crosses, 
the two wives and Artie's unfortunate daughter. He nodded painfully. He had finally made his choice. Will dug a baseball cap out from his hip pocket. He carefully placed it on Sam's head. There, Will said. You're a man now. Sam didn't hear him. He couldn't hear a thing. He shouldered the baseball bat like a soldier marching off to war and walked slowly back towards his home. The two older men stood on the porch watching him leave. He's a good man, Artie said. He'll do what he has to do. Will took a couple of practice swings with his own bat, aiming roughly at head level. He better, he said. After Sam was out of earshot, Will called the three boys in. You boys get shovels. We're going to play pirate. The three boys stared up at him like a litter of puppies staring up at their chosen sire, and then ran eagerly off to fetch the shovels. You've been listening to A Fine Sacrifice by Steve Vernon. A good reminder to keep an eye on who's calling the shots. Life is like a game sometimes, but you want to watch out for who's making the rules. Well now, that's our cue for story number two. Our second tale tonight is about friendship, loyalty, and revenge. From author Steve Vernon, I give you Dead Man's Salute. Sally May had married Luther Webster 28 years ago, and now she was washing his best clothes for his funeral. He shouldn't ought to have done it. Sally May Webster told me as she fished Luther Webster's tired blue denim shirt out of the galvanized soaking tub. She rinsed, stirred, and boiled Luther's clothes in the tub over the fire. She laid the clothes over a wooden bench and beat on them with the flat of her battling stick pounding the dirt and soap out of the clothes. Washing by hand was that kind of work, tedious, slow, and hard, but not everyone in the world could afford their own washing machine. The old time Sally Mae told me how her husband and my best friend, Luther Webster, had stood up against the Bates brothers. Them Bates boys stole our horse, she said. They burned down the stall. Are you sure it was them? I asked. We know they did it, she answered. They were stupid enough to leave a red hunting cap with the name Junior Bates scrawled on the lining in black indelible ink. That sounds like proof to me, I said. Did you call the sheriff? The sheriff's last name is Bates, Sally Mae pointed out. 
When Luther Wynn told Sheriff Bates that his best-beloved nephew stole our horse and burned our barn, he didn't say or do a goddamn thing. I guess that Sheriff Bates must have had himself a deaf day, I said. First chance I get, I'll go and talk to him, see if I can't blow his ears clean out. Wouldn't do any good now, would it? Sally Mae said. Wouldn't hurt any, I pointed out. At least it wouldn't hurt me one little ding-dong bit. Sally Mae just grunted at that, turned back to her laundry. Luther walked up to that cabin. She went on. He said he'd talk some sense into them. I said that I ought to go with him, but he went alone. I kept listening. One thing lead to another. Next thing I know, Luther was lying dead in the dirt, shot in the back. She said... I told him that he ought not go up against those bait boys, but he did it just the same. And now he's lying out there in the hills. I can't even bring him home to bury him. They've got somebody watch that body night and day. They say they'll shoot anyone who dares to move it. What sense does that make, I ask? Guarding a dead body like that. Who said sins had anything to do with it? She said giving the tub another stir. It's Bates' sense. Nothing more than spite and meatfulness and pure boiled hatred. Well, where are Luther's friends? I asked Sally. Why aren't they coming to see to his burial? His friends? Right now, you're it. Nobody else? Luther never really put up with other people since coming back from Korea, Sally said. He kept to himself mostly. He wasn't a lonely man so much as he was just awfully used to being alone. He would talk to me, and he would talk to the cat, and he would even talk to the dog on a good day. But that was just about as social as life got for my man Luther. He was good to me, though, and after a while his solitary ways kind of rubbed off on me as well. I understood what she was telling me. There had been no crowd around me since the war. I hadn't even talked to Luther since coming home. It wasn't like I didn't think of him. I just didn't think of actually calling them. Then, two nights ago, Sally woke me up from a sound sleep with a 2 a.m. phone call for help. She'd walked the two miles into town and fed a lonely silver dime into the corn slot. Luther has been shot to death, she told me over the phone. I'll be there directly, I told her, just as soon as I can get. It took me two whole days, but I got there. The truth is everyone in town's afraid of the Bates boys. She went on, still working that wash tub. They already put the word out that anyone foolish enough to try and see that Luther got a proper burial had better dig a grave for their own first. I'm about giving up on the idea of burying him, she admitted. I figured that either some bear would drag him off, or else the base boys would get tired of the smell of dead meat and finish off what was left of him with a tin of kerosene and a match. She shook the clothes out and wrung them by hand, and then she hung them over the willow with the fence to dry. I tried to do it myself, she said. 
I walked up there and I tried to drag him home, but they wouldn't give me a chance. They pushed me down and they tore my blouse. They would have done worse if I hadn't had a butcher knife tucked in my belt where I could grab it. I could see her biting the inside of her cheek hollow while she said that last bit. It was easier to ache than to grieve. She wasn't going to let a tear fall if she could help it. But it hurt just the same to watch her chew. Until you drove up, I was thinking of maybe burying his best set of clothes and putting up a wooden cross over them. She confessed. It wouldn't have been much, but at least it would have been something. I had first met Luther Webster in the summer of 1950 in the Korean jungle just outside of a little town that sounded as if someone's mouth was full of bottle glass when they had named it. It was raining that day. A hard, slow drizzle that left you soaked to the bone all day long. But we were cold and wet and absolutely miserable. I was sitting in my foxhole carrying an M1 Garand rifle. The Garand was a useful tool. It had enough stopping power to put down a grown man with one shot if you put that shot in the right place. Its eight cartridge loading clip allowed you to keep up a fairly stiff rate of fire, so long as you weren't inclined to the occasional bout of thumb-fingered cack-handedness. With a bayonet, you could gull at anyone foolish enough to come at you head-on. And the rifle had enough heft in the butt end to bang in somebody's skull quite nicely, if it come down to that. It did a proper killing job, which is what we Americans had really come to Korea for. Whether it was right or wrong, we were here to kill North Koreans until they finally saw South. So we lay there in the dark and waited and those north-minded Koreans came at us sometime after midnight. Have you ever heard of a human wave? Well, that first night, the North Koreans hit us with an entire human tsunami as platoon after platoon poured out of the jungle and washed over our foxholes. I fought back just as hard as I could, firing shot after shot until I ran out of ammo. That's when the first bullet caught me in the shoulder and I dropped down. The rain pulled up at the bottom of my foxhole until I found myself squatting in a foot of water, unsure of whether or not I was going to bleed to death from the bullet hole or just accidentally drown myself under a sump of watered-down blood. I slid my bayonet out of its sheath and I fixed it into place on the end of my garin and sat there waiting to die. Wounded or not, I was determined to give those boys a fight before they took me under. And that was where I first met Luther. He jumped into the foxhole and he slapped the field dressing over my wound like a one-man mash team. Then he stood up with his brown and automatic rifle in hand, and he fought back for an entire hour, 
standing over my foxhole and firing 30 caliber size holes into the belly of that human tsunami that kept coming at us until finally our long prayed for reinforcements finally showed up and drove the North Koreans back into the woods. That was the first day I met Luther. He saved my life and I knew it, then and now. The way that I see it, a man like Luther Webster is an honest-to-God American hero. He deserved more than a lonely country graveyard. He deserved an orchestra and a bugler and a squadron of Marines in full-dress regalia and a 21-gun salute. I was here to see that done. And those clothes will be dry in an hour or two, the way the sun is heating up, I said to Sally. I'll just go on up over the hill to the Bates farm and bring Luther back. You're sure you want to do this? Sally asked. Sure doesn't have a thing to do with it, I told her. I have to do it is more like what it really is. I opened the trunk of my car and I changed into my uniform. I made sure my boots were tied and I sensed my ammo belt snug. I lifted my Garand rifle from out of the gray blankets I had wrapped it in. I checked it carefully and loaded the first clip of eight cartridges. Lastly, I hooked my one grenade onto my belt. I had a 45 automatic pistol holstered at my belt. The pistol wasn't much for distance, but it would be useful if all else failed. I walked up the hills, trying to remember the words to high noons, Do not forsake me, oh my darling. A cricket sang to me as I walked. Stupid, stupid, stupid. But I couldn't tell you the name of the song it was singing. The sun sliced through the treetops and painted the dirt with Venetian slats of light and shadow. The wood frogs creaked and the horseflies and mosquitoes were hungry as always. The devil's paintbrush lit the dark forest floor like a legion of brightly burning candles. It took nearly a half an hour to reach the Bates farm. <laughs> Luther's body was lying in the dirt where they had left them. Oh, man. The maggots moistly crawled across what was left of them, flexing and coaxing their foul bodies like tiny dead fingers. There were so many maggots that I could hear them moving making their own kind of music. It looked like maybe a coyote had been chewing on some of his stomach. Fat, nasty green bottle flies buzzed noisily about the wet knots tangled in the fatty folds of his viscera. I had seen worse in the war, but it's never easy looking at a friend that way. I took my pack off and laid it down beside Luther's body. Then I looked down at the cabin. It was a solid-looking structure that looked about a hundred years old, built upon a foundation of carefully stacked ground rock with a locust seal and walls of mountain pine that looked as if they might stand for another hundred years. I put three tall, fat poplar trunks between myself and the house before I called out. I've come for Luther, I called out to the cabin. He needs to be buried. Leave him right where we flung him. A voice graveled out from the shadows of the front porch. 
We like him fine right where he is. I eyeballed the situation. I could see a shadow casting out from behind the gray willow rocking chair. Somebody was kneeling there and watching me. It might be they had been sitting there the whole time and I hadn't noticed. Damn it. I was getting careless in my old age. I put the gear into my shoulder, took aim and fired two shots into the back of the rocker. The dry wood shattered and the man that had been hiding behind the rocker fell down upon the porch. Things happened fast after that. What sounded like a shotgun blasted out the glass in the front window. A shower of buckshot rattled through the poplar leaves. At least two balls of shot smacked into the trunk of the third tree that I was standing behind. I fired three more times, once at the window hole and twice into the wall below the window. Two men came running out from behind the house, angling sideways toward the hillside in a determined attempt to outflank me. One of them was carrying an axe, the other a clubbish chunk of firewood. They were easy killing as I put a bullet into each of their midsections. Then I snapped off a shot at the front door to keep them guessing as I fished out another eight-shell clip and slammed it home. How many graves do I need to dig today? I called out. You tell me how high I need to learn to count to. Just yearn. Somebody called right back. One is all you'll ever need. My math lesson was followed by a ragged rattle of gunfire. The Bates boys sounded upset and a little nervous, which was good for me. It's important to keep calm and cool in a firefight. There is nothing like badly timed panic and anger for messing with your aim. And right now, I aim to exterminate the Bates clan. They had killed my friend, and they had threatened to kill others. They had torn Sally May's blouse. Lord knows what else they would do if left unhindered. So I intended to root them out like a bad patch of weeds. I emptied another clip, working my shots down the length of the house and the return fire slacked off some. Somebody popped up at the window, pointed what looked to be a 38 pistol, and plunked themselves empty in my direction. This far out was a fool's distance for pistol fire, but I wasn't about to let him manage to grow some luck. I slammed another clip into the garin, squeezed off three more shots, and whoever was at the window popped back down. That's when I caught the movement on the hillside from the corner of one eye. A young man stood up, aiming a rifle. I swung the muzzle of my garin around too late and felt something slam into my side. It felt like I'd been hit hard with a baseball bat in the ribs. I twisted and put the trunk of the tree between him and me. I eased down among the roots of the poplar thinking my snug thoughts and keeping a wary eye on the cabin. I could feel something wet on the ground soaking into my shirt. I told myself that it was only a sprinkle of morning dew. A cardinal softly sang. For a moment I lay there in the quiet of the deep woods, watching that bird flip red and happy like a bright feathered flame through the thick green boughs. They would come at me fast once they had worked up the nerve to try. That was when things would get dicey. 
It was easy to plunk shots at a cabin. It was much harder to nail a running target, especially one that was coming straight at you and most likely firing back. I couldn't see the man on the hill, but I knew he had to be up there, and it was him that worried me the most. I worked my way backwards, leaving a trail of blood in the grass. Turned out it wasn't morning dew at all. I kept my eye on the hill the whole time. Then, when I felt comfortable in my firing position, I eased one of the grenades from off my belt and lobbed it down toward the house. The grenade went off with a satisfying thunder, followed by the rattle of fragmented steel. Maybe that cabin wasn't going to stand a hundred years more. Just then, the front door of the cabin slammed open. The man on the hill stood up and fired off two more shots. I steadied myself and let the breath ease out of my lungs. And in mid-ease, I brought the sights of the big garen squarely into the middle meat of my opponent's chest. I fired two shots, and both of them hit, and he fell to the ground and rolled slowly down the hill like a young boy playing his last game of tag on this earth. Then I pulled the 45 and I angled it back over my shoulder, aiming for the four men who were coming out of the cabin. I waited until they were close enough to hit. I got two of them before the 45 was empty. One of the two remaining survivors fell back and kneeled down by a cord of poorly stacked firewood. He would have been smarter to keep coming at me. The two of them could have rushed me and took me down. They had lost their opportunity. I raised the garand up and I planted a pair of 30-06 nails into his braver brother's coffin. The one hiding behind the cordwood stood up with his rifle held above his head. I smiled at him all the time thinking about how long they had let Luther Webster's body lay there. All the time thinking about Sally Mae Webster's stubborn refusal to cry. Come on up then, I told him, after I had slung my garin and reloaded my 45. Keep that rifle up over your head. It might be you need the exercise to help you live a little bit longer. I watched him walk towards me. As he walked, I put my hand down on what was left of Luther's chest. I picked a few loose maggots from him and I flung them into the dirt. I dug a little deeper. The boy was nearly up the hill when I found what I was looking for. I kept it hidden, smiling at him. It was easy because he wasn't more than 22 years old, just about as old as I had been when I knelt in that blood and floodwater filled foxhole staring out at those Koreans. That's an awfully nice rifle you got there, I told him. That's a 22 Winchester now, isn't it? The boy nodded like he thought his head might fall from off his shoulders if he wasn't careful and nodded too hard. Why don't you throw that 22 Winchester down in the dirt over there, now that you've showed it to me? He threw it. He didn't think twice about doing it either. There's a blanket in that pack, I told the boy. You break two good links of poplar off and tie that blanket to it. You can make yourself a rough sort of travoy. Uh, trav what? The boy said. Kids today, I really don't know what they were teaching them. 
Didn't he ever read a Louis Lamar novel? Didn't he even go to Boy Scouts? So I told him what to do and watched while he did it. Then, after he had Luther in the blanket part of the homemade Travoy, I told the boy to start dragging his way towards Sally May's cabin. It took us longer to get back than it had for me to get there, but we did it just the same. Sally May was waiting by the grave. She dressed Luther in his best clothes, ignoring the mess of what was left of him. While she was at it, I got that boy to dig a grave in the field out back amongst the tall grass and fat, heavy walnut tree that would offer shade to Luther and Sally when the sun beat down. Then I had him drag the coffin that Sally had bought and kept in the barn. He dropped it once, but I hit him hard enough to keep him careful until he got the coffin into the grave hole. Then I had the boy fetch out the eight-track player that I had brought with me in the trunk of the car. I kept the gearing trained on him the whole time through. We need a plug for it to play, don't we? The boy asked of the eight-track player, staring at it like it was some kind of a fossilized relic from out of the Stone Age. It's got batteries, I assured him. Now help her get Luther into that grave hole. Help who? I took three precise steps toward the boy, brought the garin down, and caught him with the butt of it, smack dab against his jawbone. I nearly broke it in two. The boy fell to the dirt. I leaned over and looked down at him. His name was Master Sergeant Luther Webster, I told him. He was my best friend. He was a man who fought for his country, and he shot and killed many brave men in more battles than I know nothing flea pimple like you could ever dream of in your worst nightmare. That is a name that you should commit to memory, seeing as how you put this man where he is today. I had to put him in that coffin. The boy stammered through the blood that was spilling from out of his mouth. You told me to. I fished the round out of my pocket, the round that I had brooded out of Luther's open wound. This looks like a twenty-two caliber long, I said quietly. The very same as that gun you were carrying. I saw three shotguns and a three oh three Enfield and a forty-four Marlin that was most likely stolen. I saw a thirty-eight caliber revolver and an axe and a chunk of firewood. So far as I could tell, you were the only one out there carrying a twenty-two rifle. The boy opened his mouth. He closed it again before more blood could spill out. In between the open and the close, no words fell out. Stand up, I told him. It took a bit of doing, but he stood. Salute, damn it, I told him. He saluted. It looked more like a cross between someone shading his eyes from the sun and somebody wiping a tear from their eye. It wasn't right. Never mind saluting, I told him. Just put your right hand over your heart. You can manage that, can't you? I stepped back and pressed the eight-track on button. A bugler sounded taps. I raised my rifle and fired. Eight rounds. Reloaded. Eight more rounds. Sally Mae was crying by now, the tears running down her sunburned cheekbones like a gentle goodbye rain. 
I was thinking about Luther standing over my foxhole, firing his B.A.R. like it was the last thing on earth he would do. Then I thought of him lying there in the dirt where the Bates boys had left him to lie. I reloaded and fired three more times. I hit the back of the boy's right hand all three times. The three rounds passed right through his hand, his heart, and what passed for a backbone. The boy fell to the dirt. I dragged him over and rolled him into the grave hole. Then I shoveled dirt until it was done. Sally Mae helped me towards the end of it. Afterwards, I stumbled to the front porch of her house and laid down on the wind-blown floorboards. I looked up at the sky. That shirt is going to need washing, Sally Mae said. Not before I finish dying in it, I replied. <laughs> Then I closed my eyes. I heard that cardinal sing, and I wondered to myself if it was right or not. You've been listening to Dead Man's Salute by Steve Vernon. A good reminder that sometimes actions, not words, are the truest measure of friendship. So hit that thumbs up button and give me a five-star salute, won't you? Thanks, friend. A little bit about the author. Bookgasm says, if Harlan Ellison, Richard Matheson, and Robert Blotch had a three-way sex romp in a hot tub, and then a team of scientists came in and filtered out the water and mixed the leftover DNA into a test tube, the resulting genetic experiment would most likely grow up into Steve Vernon. Ah, funny. That's exactly what I had been thinking the whole time. You can find Steve Vernon's blog at stevevernonstoryteller.wordpress.com and follow him on Facebook or on Twitter at Stephen Vernon. That's Stephen with a PH. For his excellent novels and short story collections, look him up on Amazon and Audible.com. In fact, he's got his ebooks, Tattered Demon, Do Overs and Detours, which, by the way, is one of my favorites, October Tales, and Devil Tree on sale for only 99 cents through the whole month of October. He can keep you reading for quite a while, and you won't regret a minute of it. If you enjoyed today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and I'd really appreciate it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating all the way back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks for your time and for supporting our sponsors. 
When you support our sponsors, you help support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. So stop by and say hello to me. I won't bite. Much. I'd also like to mention that we are accepting submissions. If you've got a story you'd like to be featured on this show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, friends. At least till next time. So grab a drink for the road if you like, but watch your step on the way out. The water's cold and deep, and old Chester's getting hungry. Until next week, friend, may the wind be at your back, keep her steady at double nickels, and by all means, be loyal to your friends, your real friends anyway. Other than that, be careful who you toss the ball around with. You never know, you might be playing a whole different game than you thought you were. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.